Like Tim said, we're, we're focusing in on the cross and this Good Friday. And one author has said about Good Friday that it's, it's when the most horrible thing that ever happened was the most wonderful thing that ever happened. And in a group this size, and not everybody would claim to be a follower of Jesus, but whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, a Christian or not, had you have been there, you would have agreed on that day at the cross that this Jesus, who was a great teacher, who was a compassionate man, who had miracle-working power, was suffering a, a brutal execution. Had we all been there, we, we would have all agreed on that. He was crushed. He was bruised. He was eviscerated, humiliated, stripped naked. It was, the, it was the worst of deaths. It wasn't instant. It wasn't humane. It was long. It took hours. And it was horrible. And if we would have all been there and seen that, we would have all agreed, that this is a mess. There's nothing good about this. And no one would have guessed that thousands of years later we'd be celebrating this event all over the planet with songs of praise and prayers of thankful adoration. But we are. And we can because our God has the power to turn things around. And he has ultimate authority over everything. You see, on that day, the evil powers of darkness thought that they'd killed Jesus. But Jesus defeated them and rose on Easter with the keys to every prison and every stronghold and bondage and addiction, hopelessness, wound, every type of shame and guilt. Good Friday is not just that something happened a long time ago. It's that the effect of what happened long ago is here tonight. It's so that you could know in your heart the full effect of what Jesus did in that day. In God's righteous and wise plan, this dark and disastrous moment was ordained to be the moment that would fix all the dark and disastrous things that sin had done to the world. This moment of death was at the same time a moment of life. This hopeless moment was the moment when eternal hope was given. This terrible moment was at the very same time a moment of amazing grace. This moment of extreme suffering guaranteed that suffering would end one day, once and for all. This moment of sadness welcomed us to eternal joy of heart and life. And the capture and death of Christ simultaneously purchased for us life and freedom. The very worst thing that could happen was at the very same time the very best thing that could happen. I want to look at one interaction from the Gospel of Luke in the 23rd chapter as we look at the cross. I want to look at one interaction that Jesus had in the final moments of his life and see from that the, the freedom and the hope, the forgiveness, and the love of God that was displayed in Jesus on his cross. In Luke chapter 23, Luke is setting the scene and he says that there are two other men. They're both criminals. And they were led out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. You see, at the cross, and hopefully you've spent some time in these days leading up to Good Friday and Easter, meditating on the cross and looking at these moments and what has happened there. But at the cross, there is this strange and beautiful encounter. There's this once-for-all meeting of human beings at their worst and God at his best. Now, Jesus, at this moment that Luke is describing, has already, of course, been through a mock trial where he was ridiculed, he was beat, he was spit on. He's already been flogged where flesh has been torn from his bone. He's already had the crown of thorns pressed into his head. 
He's already collapsed from exhaustion where Simon had to carry the crossbeam. He's already had the spikes nailed through his wrists and his feet. And he's already been suffocating. And now in the final moments of his life on planet Earth, the father has placed his son between two criminals and a garbage dump. Why, why does Luke tell us about three men? Why not just focus only on Jesus? And I think possibly it's because he wants us to know that God is thinking about the person who is in the worst shape of all. Perhaps Luke brings us this story so that we don't forget that there's always a connection between the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All those things are connected to a common, ordinary person at the end of their rope. We're, we're not exactly sure what these criminals did. We, we call them thieves, but we're not exactly sure. But in the Roman world where Jesus was in, there was a very low tolerance for crime in Jerusalem. The situation politically was, was very unstable. So to keep a hold on society, um, the, the, the Romans had a very low tolerance for any kind of crime. And when you committed a crime like stealing, they were going to make an example out of you. And you'd be crucified outside of the city on a common roadway where people passing by would look at them and say, I don't know what they did, but I don't want to end up like them. Verse 34 tells us what Jesus is thinking in this moment. It says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. In the midst of this mayhem, Jesus has compassion and looks at the crucifiers and he says, Father, you know they don't know the whole story. They don't get it and I have a heart of forgiveness towards them even now in this moment. Luke colors in the scene a little bit more for us. In verse 35, it says there's people who stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked Jesus. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So that's the scene that's happening there. And then the criminals pile on and they chime in. And one of the criminals in verse 39, Luke 23, who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The way that crucifixion works is your arms are outstretched and nailed to a wooden crossbeam. And you'd be lifted up and the weight of your body uh, caused your chest to sag, which put tremendous pressure on your lungs. And the only way that you could breathe was to push up against the nails in your feet and, and lift up your body enough so that you could take a quick gulp of air until you were so excited, so exhausted that you would suffocate to death. It was a slow and painful death of asphyxiation. And sometimes this would, would take days, depending on what kind of shape you're in by the time you made it to the cross. And sometimes when it would take too long, the soldiers or the executioners would come by and they would break the shins of those being crucified so they could no longer push themselves up to breathe. And in that moment, in that moment where this criminal is, is fighting for life and he's fighting for, for breath, with this limited breath, what this guy wants to do is insult the man next to him. That's a, that's a lot of hatred and hurt. And, and some of you here, you understand what that's like. You've been so wounded that all you know how to do is to wound others. And that's this man. And one of the insults that Luke records is the phrase, aren't you the Christ? 
and save yourself and us. What, he, what he's saying is not a cry for salvation because Luke's told us that he's taunting Jesus. But, but he's saying, if you're so great, why don't you do something? If you're the king, do something. If you've got power, use it. And, and while you're at it, save me. Can you imagine this scene? The, the three men are bleeding and, and, and suffocating to death. And one of them is insulting Jesus. But the other has the sense to understand who Jesus is. He says in verse 40, the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? He's saying, even at the end of your life, you don't fear God. It's one thing to not fear God when we're out there committing crimes and stealing and, and living as though we are in charge. But here, we're, we're clearly at the bottom. And we're bleeding to death. And we're going we're gonna to die here. And even at the end of, of, of the day, you don't even fear God. With your final dying breath, you don't fear God. Verse 41, he says, We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man... He's done nothing wrong. He got it. Somehow all the, all the dots were connecting for him. And then he said in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A nine-word prayer. It could, it could have been the only prayer that he ever prayed in his life, but at the end of the day, with the fear of God in his heart and with a clear view of who Jesus is, he prays this simple, I don't have a lot of breath, I don't have a lot of time left prayer. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me? Jesus, please remember me. Isn't that really what all of us are hoping for at the end of the day? That somehow in our, in our crazy lives, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of all of our failure, don't we want to know that Jesus remembers us? I mean, that's really getting down to it. That's getting below all the right phrases and, and the words and the church prayers. That's getting down to the real issue of our hearts. God, do you remember me? Or, or, or maybe, God, please don't forget about me. That was his prayer. Jesus, re remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow this guy knew that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he returns in power. He says, will you remember me? What a prayer. Jesus answers with one of his last breaths. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. I, I like to imagine the face of the, of the thief. <laughs> Wait, can you say that again? Jesus says, man, I'm telling you the truth. Today, you and me, paradise. Three men are dying here, but two of them are going to paradise. Historians and archaeologists, they tell us that the place where Jesus was crucified was a landfill, a, a garbage dump called Golgotha. It was one of the worst sort of primitive, barbaric landfill possible. And it, it was very convenient for crucifixions because after they had broken the legs of the criminals and after they had died, most of the families were not around to take the body. Most, most people had wanted nothing to do with these criminals after they had died. So they would just peel the bodies off of the beams and they would just throw their bodies into the garbage heap and the dogs and the wild animals would come and, and, and eat anything that was left on the bones. There was no burial. There was no evidence of the life of the people who were crucified there. It's only because Jesus was the Son of God and there was a prophecy that must have been fulfilled that a man was there with authority with the courts to say, I want the body of Jesus before sundown. I want to give him a proper burial. But, but normally a body would just be discarded in the garbage dump. 
And Jesus changed the destiny for one of these criminals. Uh, there's an author that I've read. He said he, he brings paradise to the garbage dump. In the middle of a landfill, in the middle of a garbage dump, the paradise of God was born in a heart of simple faith. Don't ever count God out because he only needs a breath to change the direction of our eternity. God put this criminal in our story so that we wouldn't get the idea that we get to heaven because we're better than someone else. We all get to heaven when we pray a simple prayer of faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom because I've got nothing to offer you. But I believe that you are the innocent son of God and I believe that you have power that is going to last forever. So will you remember me? And and sometimes people put more words around that prayer and that's fine. You might understand more about spiritual matters than the thief did. Maybe you know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe you know that the wages or the payment or the penalty of that sin is, is death. That Christ came to take away our sin and his perfect sacrifice takes away our stain of sin. Maybe you know that in Jesus we are born to brand new life by his spirit and that his Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and brings our spirits to life. Maybe you know that we are reborn as sons and daughters of God and you know now that you have the power of God to walk in faith and live out the hope of God for your life. And if you know all that, that's wonderful. But if you know far less, that's okay too. If all you know is, Jesus, you are innocent, and my hope is in you because I've got nothing, God will hear that prayer, and God will bring paradise to a dump. You see, it wasn't that the criminal was at the right place at the right time. You might look at that, and you're like, man, that criminal really lucked out that he just so happened to be crucified next to Jesus on that day. It's that Jesus was at the right place at the right time because if he's not in the garbage dump, if he's not on the cross, and you die, and I die. The, the power of, of our story is that it's never too late for God to do a miracle. It's not too late for God to do a miracle tonight in your life. But if you're trying to keep it all together, and you try to keep it tidy and, and neat and hidden and pretending, well, Jesus can't help you because Jesus is always running towards the brokenness. We see that. He's never afraid to go anywhere. He's always moving towards the brokenness. And you might think, no, not my life. Jesus would never show up here. Jesus would never show up, not, not in my life, not with me drunk, not with me high, not with me addicted, not with me lying, not with my greed, not with my adultery, not with my hatred and foolishness, not with my anger and doubt. Jesus is not coming here. He's not coming to me. What we know and believe is that Jesus is on a relentless mission to get to where you are. And he's not afraid of the mess. He was born in a feeding trough in a cave and he died in a landfill. Jesus is not afraid of the mess. He's not afraid to walk through any door, go to anyone that says, Jesus, will you remember me? Because I need a savior. I need a rescue. And he says to that person, I'm bringing paradise to wherever you are. This interaction shows us that we, that we have different responses to the cross. You can respond with rejection. To the one thief, Jesus on the cross as a savior was foolishness. And, and Jesus was a failure as a savior to him because for that man, for that criminal, his only concern was that 
he would be rescued from harm. But you see, Jesus came to save people from something far more important. He came to save people from themselves. You can respond with rejection or you can respond with repentance. The, the other criminal gives the gospel in just a few sentences. He says, don't you fear God? Jesus is God. He says, it's just, it's right. The right thing is for us to get death. The penalty for our rebellion is death. Eternal separation from God. And he's saying, you are God and I'm a mess. Please forgive me. He knew that his sin stood between him and God and he is met with the irresistible forgiveness of God because the response of Jesus is redemption. He says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now this criminal, he knows what all we who believe know full well that call on the name of Jesus to be saved because only the name of Jesus is the saving name. He is justified by faith in Jesus alone. And in that moment, a thief is made righteous. He believed, confessed, repented, trusted, preached, loved, prayed, all in a few sentences. The thief isn't looking to get out of what he justly deserves. He's simply looking to Jesus in recognition of and repentance from what has made him guilty. He has to be remembered, but Jesus gives him more. He gives him paradise. And Revelation chapter 21 tells us, describes paradise. It's the dwelling place of God with man. It's the place where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither will there be any mourning or pain or sickness because these things have passed away. Paradise is us with God. It's what we're made for. Eternal friendship and joy, the, the one who made you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, says how we get there. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of you doing anything so that no one would, would boast. It's by grace. What could the thief possibly do in that moment? All he had to do was hang on the cross and trust. That's the portrait of grace. You see, religion says to you, you better do your part. You better come through. And Jesus says, no, I, I did your part. That's the beauty of grace. You couldn't do your part. You couldn't pay your debt. Jesus did. Martin Luther, he rightly claims that on the cross, Jesus became the most grotesque, ugly, and hideous thing in the history of all creation. In what he calls the great exchange, the sinless Jesus so thoroughly took our place that he became the worst of what we are. Rapists, thieves, perverts, addicts, liars, gluttons, gossips, murderers, adulterers, fornicators, and idolaters. While he never committed any sin, Jesus actually took to himself our sin with all its horror and shame. And as our sin was laid upon Jesus and he became the most heinous of beings, Jesus was literally cursed by God on the cross. He came under the judgment of God the Father and God the Spirit as nothing less than ugliness of damnable evil. It was our sin and our condemnation, but it was Jesus, the sinless one, who took our place and in doing so took our sin and condemnation so that we could live a new life with a new nature by a new power free from sin and condemnation. Atonement for sin was made and the holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath of God were satisfied in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He became a final sacrifice where all guilt and shame and condemnation of God were on him 
and Jesus blotted it out. On the cross, Jesus took on himself everything that tore our relationship with God apart and repaired it. We couldn't have paid the price, but we benefit from every drop of Christ's shed blood and the mercy and the grace that was extended there, the love that was displayed there, the exchange that happened in that place by grace through faith. Faith is the is the conduit, the vehicle. It's how grace gets back and forth. It's the confidence in who God is and what he's done and what he can do and what he will do. It's faith that confesses sin and that turns from it and that trusts in Christ alone. And who is it for? If the criminal in the last hour of his life can turn and receive grace and exercise faith, then you can too. Acknowledge your rebellion your sin and your brokenness and your helplessness. That is the posture that receives forgiveness, that receives the grace of God by faith in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel, for this good news that rescues that redeems, that gives us a a hope and a future with you forever. Father, now I'm praying for the person in this field, God, who they would say at this moment, I I haven't experienced that. I, I don't know that. And God, I pray by your spirit, you might move in their hearts so that their prayer tonight would be, Jesus, remember me. I have no hope apart from you. Jesus, I thank you for your cross. I thank you for what we see and experience and most importantly, what we have because of your perfect sacrifice. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.